Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The things that we as human beings are striving for, things that we're hoping to attain with the idea that if I could just have these things or experience this, this is going to bring me happiness. This is going to bring me fulfillment. Think about it. What do we long for? We long for love, for peace, for happiness, for meaning, for purpose. These are the very things that God gives to us when we come to Him. The problem is we're always looking for these things in the wrong places. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Hebrews. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, in a message titled, Why God Took on Flesh and Blood. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Coming to our teaching here today, we are picking up in uh, the fifth verse of the second chapter. And what I'm trying to avoid doing is getting sidetracked off into different little subjects that you might get sidetracked off into uh, just by some of the individual verses. What I'm trying to do is keep the flow of thought. So we're following the arguments as they are presented. And it's because I'm, I'm trying to approach it that way that we're taking more verses than we might normally take. So today we're going to pick up in verse 5 and we're going to go to the end of the chapter, verse 18. There are all kinds of verses that we could just camp on and talk about but if, if we do that, then we kind of, you know, we kind of lose the continuity of what the author is really getting at. So, so that's why we're going to be taking a, a pretty good chunk of Scripture here today. So now, the, let me just give you the quick reminder, quick background just to catch us up. Because when we pick up in verse 5, we're picking up in the middle of a, a thought. The, the author is, we stopped... And uh, he carried on. So we're, we're coming back into this, this thought process. We're coming back into this argument, really, where he's building his case to remind these Jewish believers who are being tempted uh, to go back to Judaism because of the comfort, because of the security. They're living through challenging times as believers in the Messiah right now. So they're under this temptation to go to go back, so he's arguing, showing them that they don't want to do that. There's nothing back there for them, although that, that was a system that God established. He's moved, God himself has moved on from it, and God has brought about this new covenant. And so in proving this point, what he's doing is he's showing the superiority of the new and especially of Christ. He's showing the superiority of him over everything that's preceded, and he started with the angels, because as we previously saw these Jews had in their mind that the angels might somehow be superior and the angels gave the law. And so they were connecting all of that. And and again, they were being tempted to go back to the former system. So he argues against that. He explains to them that, uh, no, your, your own scriptures, we looked at these, that your own scriptures declare the supremacy of the son 
over the angels. He by inheritance has a more excellent name than they do. Then he goes on to show how the scriptures uh, confirm that. Now it seems when we come to the fifth verse, it seems that they're still kind of struggling with this whole thing of the humanity of Jesus. It appears to us that human beings are inferior to angels. So they're, they're, they're still seemingly struggling with this. And so he's going to show here in his argument as he carries on with it, he's going to show that the reality is human beings are superior to angels, even though presently it doesn't seem to be the case. But through Jesus, that's where we see the ultimate superiority. Now, here's a, a mind-boggling thing to me. The passages that we're, we're going to read here, they teach that man... And remember, man is made in the image of God, and I'm including woman in that, of course, uh, that man is God's, man is the apex of God's creation, even above the angelic beings. And so let me read verses 5 through 18. For he, speaking of God, has not put the world to come, the future world. He's not put the future world of which we speak in subjection to angels. Angels will not rule the future world, he says. And then he goes back to the Old Testament, as he often does, and he quotes from the eighth Psalm. But one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So this is the, uh, again, he's going back to the Old Testament scriptures, which they, of course, would put every bit of confidence in. And he's showing how even in the Old Testament, it was stated that angels are not going to ultimately rule, but man is going to rule. But he says this, for in that he put all things in subjection under man, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but this is what we see. We see Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So he says, we don't see the fulfillment of what God declared he was going to do, but what do we see now? We see Jesus. So Jesus is the representative, and he's the one through whom man is going to attain to this, this ultimate position that God intended for man in the first place. One of the most fascinating things about this is that we're being told here that God's intention is that man rule the world. Now, the reason that's fascinating to me is because this is the very thing men have been trying to do from the beginning, but to no avail. This, this is, you know, even, even today, certain political ideas and so forth, the objective is to, to, for men to rule the world, for us to bring everything into... Uh, subjection to uh, some, you know, 
political system, some philosophical system, and, and that we would control everything. But the problem historically has always been that the attempts are attempts to do it apart from God. They're attempts to do it in rebellion to God. But the irony in the whole thing is the very thing man is striving for is the very thing that God intends to do. But if man would just allow God to do what he wanted to do, he would see accomplished what he really longs to see accomplished. But the irony is that we don't do it. Humanity doesn't do it. This is the story of human history. C.S. Lewis put it like this. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And it's so true, isn't it? I mean, you think of the things that we long for as human beings, the things that we as human beings are striving for, things that we're, we're hoping to attain with the idea that if, if I could just have these things or experience this, this is going to bring me happiness. This is going to bring me fulfillment. Think about it. What do we long for? We, we long for love. Uh, we long for peace. We long for happiness. We long for meaning. We long for purpose. These are the things that we long for. These are the very things that God gives to us when we come to him. The problem is we're always looking for these things in the wrong places. We never come to the right place. So this is the to me, this is the great irony. God's plan for man is really mind-blowing because he plans to give man the rule of the whole universe, and that's going to happen through Jesus. And so verse 9, we see Jesus, who was made temporarily lower than the angels, Jesus is the man who will rule, but he tells us here, before Jesus ruled as man, he suffered as man, and he suffered for man. You know, the problem with all political systems is people. People are always the problem. You know, in theory, this ought to work. You know, people, some, some would say socialism is the ultimate form of human government. And, you know, the idea is that everybody's equal. We all get along. We all share together and, and all of that sort of thing. You know, theoretically, it sounds like a good idea. But you know what? It doesn't work. It's never worked. It hasn't worked in the past. It's not working today. And it's never going to work in the future. Why? Because there are people involved in it. And people, <laughs> the problem with people is we're sinners. And so we can see the idea. We can think that you know, it's attainable. But the fact of the matter is, it's not attainable. We can never attain to it. It's because of the sin issue. Jesus is the answer to all of these problems because he doesn't have that issue. He doesn't have a sin issue. You see, Jesus can rule because there's no sin. There's no, he's not driven by any kind of personal ambition or motive or selfish kind of an agenda whatsoever. He serves completely out of absolute purity and love for others. So we see Jesus. He is the one who will rule. But before ruling, he says that he, was, he suffered. He suffered as man and for man. And now he refers to him here. Uh, let me just 
finish reading verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, that's God, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. So we see Jesus, who for a short while was made lower than the angels. He is crowned with glory and honor after suffering and death. Now, the son, or as he refers to him here, the captain of our salvation, it says that it was fitting for the father to make the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering. Now, as we go further, we're going to see all of this is related to the, the bigger picture of what he's wanting to talk about here. And let me, let me just say this before we go there. Um, the message, I've, I've entitled the message, Why God Took on Flesh and Blood. Why God Took on Flesh and Blood? Because that's really the, the question that's being addressed here, or it's, it's the question that's being answered. This is obviously a question in the mind of the readers. There's still baffled by this whole thing of the incarnation. How, how is it that God, why would God do this? And so the author is explaining this. That's what he's doing here. And so he says, it was fitting for God in bringing many sons to glory. That would be all of us who believe in Jesus and bringing us to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, the word captain here, the, the word means the source. You could translate the word the, the leader or even the, the pioneer, somebody who paves the way for others. So Jesus is the one. He paves the way for us. He, what, he paves the way to what? He paves the way to glory. God's bringing many sons to glory. Jesus is the first one to, to go through that, that process. But he brings him through it, it says, through suffering. And it says that through this, he is perfected. Now, this is perplexing to some people. How, how is it that it says that Jesus would be perfected? How does Jesus need to be perfected? That's a good question. And what we need to understand is the perfecting is not referring to any moral perfecting. Jesus was perfect. He didn't need to go through any kind of a process to become more perfect in a moral sense. He was sinless. And so he had no need for that kind of perfecting. The perfecting here refers to a, what you might call a vocational perfecting through suffering. It's a vocational. He's going through this suffering as preparation for his 
position in the future. What is his position going to be in the future? It's going to be to mediate between God and people. That's what he does today. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But he goes through the human experience, including suffering, so that he can mediate effectively, so that he can sympathize with those that he's mediating for. So the perfecting is, like I said, it's more of a vocational perfecting. It's like the priest in the Old Testament, they had to be qualified to serve in their office as priest. And so Jesus, this is qualifying him to serve as the the priest and the king. The priest is the mediator. And he's mediating not from the position of simply having information about our suffering, like he can see it from a distance, but he's, he's mediating from a position of having lived it. That makes, a, that makes a big difference. You know, if I come to somebody, if I'm suffering and I come for consolation or help or counsel or advice to somebody who's never suffered a day in their life, they see my suffering and they might even be sympathetic and they might, might want to say a good thing or two to help me out, but it's difficult. They've never been there. They don't really know what to do. You never have that problem with Jesus. You see, Jesus, he doesn't just know about suffering. He doesn't just know that you have suffered. He suffered also. So when you come to Jesus, when we come to him with our problems, whatever it might be, we're coming to a person who knows exactly what we're dealing with because he was there. That's the amazing thing that the incarnation did, and that's what the author is wanting them to see, that the whole thing of the, of the incarnation, the whole thing of the, uh, the Son of God becoming a human being for this season was not uh, a sign of, of weakness. It was a sign of goodness on God's part. It was, a, it was a sign of grace on God's part. He did it for our benefit. And so he goes on and he says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you again. I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. So he goes back as his, his, his method here. He quotes again from the Old Testament, showing that the Old Testament had predicted that the Messiah, who is God, would become one with us to the point that he would refer to us as his brothers as his brothers and sisters. He would take on that same identity with us. And notice he says that he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. Now, sanctification, that's a word that describes the process that we go through in life of becoming like Jesus, to put it simply. The process that we go through in life, all of life, once you come to faith in Christ, you're justified and you enter into this process of sanctification that will last the rest of your life. And during the sanctification process, God is working out the old things and he's working in the new. He's working to obliterate the old man and to bring forth the new man created in the image of Christ. That's what he's doing. 
But while he's walking us through this long process, he's the sanctifier. We are the sanctified. But again, he's doing it from the standpoint of having been among us. So you see, when you, when you think about this thing of sanctification, this, to me anyway, this, this makes it so much more beautiful inasmuch as the one who's doing the sanctifying, he's gone through these things himself. So he knows what the best possible thing for us is that's going to accomplish the sanctification without destroying us in the process. You know, if God were to just come along and say, I need to make you holy right this second, that could be extremely painful. That could be, that'd rip you to shreds, you know, possibly. Because I mean, God's going to rip all the sin out of your life. That's what sanctification is. God's getting the sin out of our life. Now, like I said, if he just came and did that just instantaneously, that this would be very painful for all of us. But he does that, but he does it from the standpoint of one who knows where we have been. He does it from the standpoint of one who has walked in our shoes. So you see, the, the author is showing them that far from the incarnation being something that lessens the glory of Jesus, if you will. No, the incarnation magnifies the glory of Jesus. He condescended to this place because of his love for us. Now, in verses 14 through 18, and these are the ones that I want to focus on here as we kind of get into the, the primary thing that, that I want to focus on and the primary thing that the author is, is wanting to drive home is really an, an answer to the question, why God took on flesh and blood? Have you ever asked that question yourself? Have you ever struggled with the whole concept of the deity of Christ? God becoming a man. Many people have struggled with that. The Jews, of course, struggled with it back in the, the days of Jesus. They still struggle with it today. I was just speaking to Jewish friends in Israel recently, and some of them were telling me, you know, still one of the big stumbling blocks for the Jew is how could God become a man? Just, just, why would he do something like that? God's so great. And if you talk to a Muslim about the whole idea of the incarnation, in their mind, no, it's impossible. God is too great. He could never become a man. So why did God take on flesh and blood? He's going to answer the question here. But maybe you've wondered yourself. When I was a, a relatively young Christian, and I remember going through a season where I was under intense spiritual attack, and it, it really centered on this whole issue of the person of Christ and the deity of Christ. And now, let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource on Back to Basics. There are certain Christian books that we would refer to today as classics, books that have just stood the test of time, and generation after generation of Christians have benefited from them. There is a book that is recently published called Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland. And, you know, many people are already saying that this is a Christian classic. Now, Gentle and Lowly is 
taken from the passage in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says of himself that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And so this book is looking at Jesus through that lens, and we're going to find out that Jesus is much more gracious, much more patient, much more loving than we ever imagined him to be. So this is a fantastic book, and I highly recommend it, especially for anyone who has a tendency to feel like they failed God, they've let him down, or you're not sure about God's love for you. This book is going to, I think, forever give you the right perspective on the heart of Jesus for his children. So check it out, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. Again, this month's resource is a book titled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. You can order the book Gentle and Lowly by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Hebrews. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.